Ying have expressed hope that Mrs. Lam will heal Hong Kong's divisions, and the Elections Commission chairman says a ballot with a Chinese swear word was handled in a fair and open way. And that's the news from RTHK. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Maureen Tilbrook moved to Hong Kong in 1965 and worked as a teacher. She's married to British artist Brian Tilbrook, who's also been on the programme. Maureen has been active over the decades in improving the lot of women here, focusing on women's rights, highlighting the plight of battered women and rape victims and protecting the city's sex workers. Well, we came to Hong Kong in 1965 and have been here ever since. Our children were born here. When we first arrived, we were both teaching, and then I had a break while the children were very small, and then went back at the beginning of 77. Initially, I wasn't that concerned about the women's movement. didn't really register with me. But in 1975... At the same time as the Mexico conference, the UN conference, the first one on women, we had a celebration here in Hong Kong over two days in the new Sheraton Hotel in Kowloon. And I helped with organising the venue. And it was an immensely successful gathering of something between three and four hundred women over a two-day weekend. And from that, the Hong Kong Council of Women, which had been languishing a little bit, received a a real injection of new life and new interest. And for the next four years, I was quite involved with that organisation. We were looking particularly at women in the family, violence in the family, uh, rape victims. In the 1970s, the government was addressing a number of the social issues, but educationally, girls were not, until 1971, uh, expected to be compulsorily in primary education, neither were boys, and not until 78 in secondary. It's hard to think, isn't it, when when you look at the huge emphasis now on on education in, in Hong Kong for all, um, um, there are still some groups who languish here, unfortunately, mm. but generally, um, you know, the, 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 you have um, primary, secondary is now yes. compulsory. Yes. And I mean, we've got at least seven universities now. And when we came, there was only Hong Kong University. And I was very aware of that because couldn't understand. I was teaching at St. Paul's Convent in Causeway Bay. There were squatter huts all up the hillsides. In 1966, we had the communist school nearby marching around the outside of the school hall, chanting from the little red book, while the girls inside were desperately trying to do their biology school cert exam. And I thought, however can they concentrate on this? It was a very limited number of people who were in school. No, that's not quite true. We would see hundreds of children going to school, but it was morning school and afternoon Mm -hmm. school the parents were making the most enormous effort to send their children so take me back uh, if we can start there with you you arrive in 1965 what subjects did you teach was it a general primary education 
No, I was in the secondary school at St Paul's. I was teaching history and inevitably English. And what sort of history? <laughs> Very inappropriate in my view. <laughs> it was uh, European history and British history. So I was trying to convey what a municipal corporation in 1835 was to a class of Chinese students. <laughs> And I did feel very much that both the syllabus and also the exam system was strangely mismatched. You came here in 1965. Uh, can you tell me where you originate from? I came from South London, the Epsom area, and I went to university in London and taught on the north side of London. And after three years, I went to Kuala Lumpur, and had two years in the womb of the jungle. It was absolutely wonderful. Cut off from all the concerns of the world, not even really being aware of the missile crisis in Cuba. No television, of course. Very little on the radio. Nothing in the local papers. It was... I think all of us felt that it was a very happy existence because we were free from worries about the international scene. And I remember growing up thinking there was going to be a Third World War, the Cold War was very present all the time. It wasn't a comfortable world from that point of view. I was also very aware of the burgeoning world population and I thought at one point that I really shouldn't have any children at all. We do have three. <laughs> so it didn't uh, affect me ultimately. But, you know, the pressures were there growing up and being at university, being furious about the Suez invasion and the British role in going in there, horrified by what was happening in Hungary and East Germany. And then you end up in Malaysia. So you were teaching in Malaysia? Yes, I was teaching. Or then Malaya, would it have been? It was Malaysia by that time. I think 57 was when it changed. So this was in 62 until 64. So we met in Malaysia. We got married there. Had not met each other's parents, relatives and so on. Yes, your husband is Brian Tilbrook, the artist. That's right. We felt at the end of our two-year contract we were duty-bound to go back to the UK. But it was grey and miserable. It was very dull and boring. All the sh shops shut at 5.30. It was impossible to shop between getting back from school, which was a 20-mile train journey, making a meal, preparing a new sixth-form course. So we fled to Hong Kong, <laughs> where fortunately her job had come up for Brian. Now, when you arrive in Hong Kong, you were describing how when you worked at the convent, there were these squatter huts up the hillside. Can you sort of show us that picture? There were no high-rise buildings in Causeway Bay at that stage. Uh, they would only have been four to five storeys, shop houses. You walked underneath the arcades, kept out of the rain. And up every hillside, as you looked around and you looked east towards North Point and Quarry Bay, wherever you were looking, behind Tai Hang. These small huts, this sort of chaotic numbers of, of huts spread right up the hillside. And we were very aware in 1967, at the height of the riots, there was an acute water shortage. We only had water every fourth day 
for, I think, a couple of hours. So you filled every bath and every basin. But for people who were in the squatter huts, they had to queue on the hot hillside at the standpipe for hours to fill up whatever buckets and pans they had. And yet the children came out every morning absolutely spotless in their uniforms. And people accepted, okay, there was no water, so everybody managed. I mean, we were okay. We had a flat. Where did you live? We were in Kennedy Road, just opposite St. Francis Canossian Convent. And it was very convenient. But during the riots, uh, I mean, I could walk down into Wan Chai, Queen's Road East, uh, down the steps, Mammoth Path. And you were in old Hong Kong. It was the shop houses again. It, it's so, so different and from today. None of the um, modern building, none of the development. And during the riots, when we had the curfews... Yeah, can you describe how that first... How you remember that first coming about? I think they started in about uh, May 1967. So um, you, you first... What did you see? A protest? Or was it suddenly something in the then South China Morning Post? Or Yes, you were aware from the radio that there were problems. There were problems across in San Po Kong with the flour factory and people angry about uh, the low wages... Wages were very low and hours were incredibly long and many people had two jobs in order to support the family. It was not surprising that there was unrest and discontent. You then heard that the problem had spread across to Hong Kong side and that it wasn't terribly wise to go into Central because... Between the Hilton Hotel and Beaconsfield House, where government information services were stationed, immediately below the French mission, and across the road, the Hong Kong Bank, the old one, and the China Bank, the old one, people were gathering because they were gathering to protest by marching up Garden Road to Government House. It was a fascinating ping-pong battle of diplomacy because the Chinese bank was broadcasting the thoughts of Mao at top volume and GIS responded with uh, Chinese opera. So if you were wa working in Central, it must have been horrendous. And you then became aware that there were a few red packets being left around or little cardboard boxes in the street on the tram tracks. There was a a sense of concern, of perturbation. The people of Hong Kong seemed to make their decision fairly obvious by not patronising any of the communist stores. And when we left for our summer holiday at the end of July, I think Brian and I were very grateful to be leaving. We had been very worried about whether the Red Guards would actually come spilling over the border, which was what was expected. And the army had told us that if they had to evacuate us, we had to get to Sekong. Now, in 1967, there were no tunnels underneath the harbour. You had Star Ferry and the Jordan Road Vehicle Ferry. But the idea of getting on a ferry and then trying to find a taxi or a bus, some method of getting to Sekong, which was out in the wilds. It, we had a car, but we wouldn't have dreamt of trying to get there by car, I don't think. 
maybe we would, I don't know. But the very idea was one which was perturbing, unsettling. And so when we were back in England that summer, without intending to, we bought a bolt hole, we bought somewhere to which we could flee. And afterwards we said to each other, you know, were you worrying about, were you sleeping at night? No, no, I was having nightmares. So it was it was that kind of unsettling situation. And who was the governor at this time? David Trench was the governor, yes. And of course he was succeeded by Murray Maclehose. And we then saw a whole raft of reform in hospitals, education, housing, and the new towns and the country parks. And it was good to be alive in Hong Kong. One didn't feel quite as mm, trapped in the colonial era. You felt you'd, you were breathing fresh air and there was a new spirit. As an educator as well, I mean, you must have seen the commitment of, as you say, these parents in the squatter huts who wanted the next generation to have better than they had uh, experienced or they had been given the opportunity for. But um, so you had these children turning up for this morning and afternoon school. And of course, I mean, she's uh, died uh, in the last, I think, last year. But I mean, Elsie, too, oh, would yes. have been fundamental in, in, in her contribution for that. She really was. Uh, she so she would have been Elsie Elliot. Elsie Elliot. And, of course, she was castigated by many in the colonial echelons. The papers varied, but, of course, the public as a whole was very much in favour of Elsie Elliot. And we were lucky in 1975. She was very much involved with the Women's Conference and, and with the Hong Kong Council of Women. She was um, a model, a mentor, somebody who was unpredictable. She was prepared to say things to the colonial government that you sort of thought, uh, can she stay in Hong Kong? But of course, she had every right to stay in Hong Kong. It wasn't made easy for her. The government found her a very difficult voice. But I think when Murray Maclehose came with a very much more socialist kind of background. I believe he'd been political secretary to uh, one of the Labour politicians. So you felt that, in, in essence, there was a sort of rejuvenation of Hong Kong also, that it was being propelled into a more modern era? Very definitely so, yes. Just when when you arrive in the mid-1960s, as you yes. say, you you felt that you had come from a rather grey England, in your yeah. view, <laughs> and uh, you, you arrive in Hong Kong, yes, there's the, you know, poverty mm -hmm. straight in your face in terms of these shantytowns, really, um, the squatter huts up the, the hillsides. But um, give me a bit more of the, the colour of Hong Kong. You're, you're coming here as a, you know, newly wedded. You, you arrive in, in Hong Kong. So um, what, what would the streetscape have been like? I mean, you had, I mean, a lot of women in Chung Sams at that time. Mm. Oh, Yes. You could have extreme elegance on the one hand. The Chong Sam is a delightful garment. There would be a lot of women who would be in the Sam Fu, the trousers and the loose-fitting, more loose-fitting top, but along the lines of the Chong Sam, but suited to the working woman with the trousers. There would be a lot of children who would be doing homework in the shop, 
you don't see it so much now, but certainly in those days, small children, they had to be there with their mother in the shop. And as they would be sitting on a little stool, there'd be a table, and they would be copying out their Chinese characters, page after page. At the, the beginning of the 1970s, what, was it, what would you have said was the situation of women generally in Hong Kong? There were certainly women in business, but you were not aware that there were many women in positions of great power. Eventually you realised there was Lydia Dunn in the Executive Council, there was Ellen Lee, of course, on Exco. There were individual women, but for the vast majority, they were housewives or they were working part-time, hither and thither. It was not a world which was friendly towards the advancement of women. And I guess not until the education broadened. And with that, when I became involved in another organisation, I felt that the Hong Kong Council of Women was doing fantastic work for women in the health and social services area. But I was very aware that girls in schools didn't have much in the way of careers, education and advice. And when we established the Hong Kong Association of Business and Professional Women in 1979, one of the things that we did was to have a series of seminars on a Saturday morning. They were in Chinese, Cantonese. They were held in the Duke of Windsor building or in the Polytechnic. We had maybe two to three hundred girls at a time. Chinese women who were highly accredited professionals, whether they were engineers or accountants or in legal positions, they would give their time to come and talk and answer questions. So for girls who were 15, 16, on the cusp of making a decision about where they would go with their own lives, here were women who were of their own background, who were well-educated, who had achieved, and who were being successful. They were role models and very important. The government took this over really from NGO type organisations I guess in the 80s. What about the issue of domestic violence? I think from the time of the 1975 conference out of that grew various initiatives, one of which was Harmony House. So I think Harmony House was established maybe in 1979, 1978. The war on rape was established as a campaign, but Rain Lily didn't come into being until, I guess, 2001. Rain Lily? Rain Lily is the Rape Crisis Centre, 24-hour hotline service, and has been hugely successful in helping so many rape victims, representing them to the police at the hospitals going with them and also in the law courts. It was very much needed and domestic violence of course continues to be an issue here as everywhere throughout the world. But that was something which I felt was a great achievement in the 70s th through the 80s really and 90s. But of course the the campaigning has to continue, continue, because human beings <laughs> need constantly reminded. 
and need educating as to the situations that women face and if there's economic hardship and if men feel that they are not being able to provide for their families as they would wish and if they turn to drugs or to drink then violence is concomitant I think with those issues and it makes life very difficult. I think women have still the rub in terms of part-time work they find that... The rub? Uh, they get the thin end of the, the wedge. Uh, they're at the bottom end. So when there's not enough money and they go out to do part-time work and then they come back and they're tired and the children are fractious and the house needs cleaning and the cooking needs doing and the man comes home and expects things to be in place... That cannot happen. Women are too stressed. So the, the man takes out his frustration, perhaps, in a violent way. And abuse is something... Well, now it's the mainland women who come over and in various housing estates. They bear the brunt of the frustration that is felt by a male population which can't provide properly. When you look at um, life in Hong Kong, you know, 40 years ago and now, I mean, does, um, we have the Equal Opportunities Commission, but does the government need a kind of women's department? Well, it has a women's commission. I think that the women's commission could perhaps be more proactive, more supportive of grassroots organisations. I believe that there are a number of women's groups in Hong Kong whether it's the Queer Sisters or the Single Parents Association or the Association for the Advancement of Women, the feminist groups, the uh, groups who are trying to help sexual minorities, ethnic minorities. Women always seem to be at the bottom of the pile in any of these societal situations. And it's difficult to get real change. In uh, the United Nations, there's been an awareness and an organisation called He for She, which sounds weird. He for She, F-O-R, She. But it's an attempt to get universities and corporations to be aware of the need for advancing women through the educational processes into the top parts of an organisation and likewise with business. So gender mainstreaming is that awareness and you need women to be in municipal government, in the departments, the bureaus, wherever you are in the world. We heard of the Swedish example at this recent seminar and it was interesting that the whole process of egalitarianism in Sweden goes back to the 1930s. It's been a very slow process there. They've taken it a long way. The speaker from Sweden was showing us how you build incrementally and you have awareness in every single aspect of your government and your policy making and then it becomes part of 
the organization and the strategies that go forward. Now, we haven't got that in Hong Kong. Yes, we may have women who are going forward to political leadership roles and chief executive roles. That's wonderful. But that doesn't mean that every part of government mm. is informed by the need to look at how to advance the situation for all women, not just for a few. And unless you can accommodate women's needs, unless you can provide a political structure where women have hours which are convenient and suitable for them, unless they have child care, that provision is sadly lacking in Hong Kong. You need decent child care, good child care, affordable child care and it's the affordable element which is sadly lacking you're going to have women in care positions looking after the elderly looking after the young looking after the disabled they can only get part-time jobs because their hours are limited they won't get benefits when they retire when they're elderly who's looking after those people they're giving their lives. They're not going to get a pension in the way that a man in a good job is going to be pensioned. They have to be looked after by the government. But the government isn't aware enough of their needs. I'm talking with Moiring Tilbrook, who came to Hong Kong in 1965, worked as a teacher and has been active for more than four to five decades on <laughs> women's issues in Hong Kong. One group of women who are very much discriminated against are uh, sex workers here in Hong Kong. Indeed. In 1993, an organisation was established to reach out to the female sex workers. There are now a number of organisations which, which reach out to male sex workers, transgender groups, but Action for Reach Out was established some 25 years ago and it was a real effort by uh, two nuns, Roman Catholic nuns, and one or two lay people standing around on street corners quite literally in the Mong Kok area and Yamade and eventually gaining the confidence of a few of the street workers. Their initial concern was to help the women be represented when they were picked up by the police for soliciting. Then they would proceed to the magistrate's court uh, there was the real problem of sexually transmitted diseases and AIDS and HIV. So there was the need to accompany them to hospitals and for tests and health care. And Sister Anne and Sister Helena, they did fantastic work um, to set the organisation up. It is now staffed by six, seven staff members and then there are volunteers the staff go and do reach out in the salons, the massage parlours, the foot spas. They still reach out to women on the street. They go to the one-woman brothels in buildings in Yamade and Mong Kok. And they reach out to something around 4,000 of the sex workers in the course of a year nowadays. We're aware that in certain jurisdictions... Certainly in the Scandinavian 
countries, sex work has been changed in its status by making the customer liable for prosecution rather than the giver of the sexual service, the woman, who is now being considered the victim of the service. Attitudes can change. The women still feel very discriminated against, but we know that the police are much more aware of how they should treat women. At one point, about 20 years ago, uh, the sex workers were herded together in a cage in full view in Yamade. And this was like animals in a zoo. It was absolutely atrocious. And there was an outcry. My thanks to Maureen Tilbrook, who's dedicated decades to helping women in Hong Kong. Next week, I join heritage activist Heide Kickerboy of Walk in Hong Kong as we talk about the State Theatre in North Point and impresario Harry O'Dell, who was a tap dancer in Nagasaki. That really should be turned into the first line of a novel. Harry O'Dell was a tap dancer in Nagasaki, but he really was a larger-than-life character. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. You've been listening, of course, to Hong Kong Heritage, uh, produced and presented by Anna-Marie Evans on your station, RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio 3 The deadline for both voter registration and change of registration particulars is May 2nd. When registering as a voter, you will also become a voter in the District Council Second Functional Constituency, also known as the Super District Council. Remember to provide the Registration and Electoral Office with true and accurate information, including your phone number and email address to make it easier to contact you. Fifteen minutes away from seven o'clock, Amelia Fox now continues reading The Girls of Slender Means, Miro Sparks' darkly comic novel set in post-war London, following the lives and loves of the genteel but down-at-heel residents of the May of Tech Club. Nicholas came then to dine at the club. I thought of Chatterton, the marvellous boy, the sleepless soul that perished in his pride. Who is that? It's Joanna Child. She teaches elocution. You must meet her. The twittering movements at other points in the room, Joanna's singular voice, the beautiful aspects of poverty and charm amongst these girls in the brown paper drawing room, Selina, furled like a long, soft sash in her chair, came to Nicholas in a gratuitous flow. Months of boredom had subdued him to intoxication by an experience which, at another time, might itself have bored him. Some days later, he took Jane to a party to meet the people she longed to meet. Young male poets in corduroy trousers and young female poets with waist-length hair. 
Nicholas stood noticeably aloof at the poet's gathering, but it was evident that he wanted Jane to savour her full joy of it. In fact, he wanted her to invite him again to the May of Tech Club, as dawned on her later in the evening. It's just a girls' hostel, she said. That's all it boils down to.